Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, March 10th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top stories. Biden reveals a $6.8 trillion budget proposal for 2024. Republicans kick off their first hearing on the Afghanistan withdrawal. At least 40 are killed in alleged rebel twin attacks in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Several are killed in Russian missile attacks across Ukraine. The U.S. Senate clears a bill to block a D.C. crime law. Australia is reportedly planning to buy nuclear subs from the U.S. The U.K. government is revealed to have censored Matt Hancock's Wuhan lab leak comments. The Federal Trade Commission ramps up its investigation of Twitter. A new idea for removing CO2 from the air shows promise. And Japan arrests several people for alleged sushi terrorism. In our first story, Biden reveals a $6.8 trillion budget proposal for 2024. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, CNBC, The Washington Examiner, CNN, and 6ABC Philadelphia. On Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden unveiled a $6.8 trillion budget proposal for the 2024 fiscal year and proposed new taxes on the wealthy, which the White House said will reduce the federal deficit by nearly $3 trillion and set a record for defense spending. The budget for the fiscal year starting in October would see individuals earning more than $400,000 a year pay 39.6% income tax, up from 37% while the federal capital gains tax would nearly double from 20% to 39.6% for those earning over a million dollars. Biden's plan would also implement a 25% minimum tax on Americans worth over $100 million. Senate Democrats pushed for a similar plan in 2021, but didn't garner wide support within the party. Biden is also asking Congress to approve an $842 billion defense budget, $26 billion more than 2023's budget, and nearly $100 billion more than two years ago. Congress added $40 billion to Biden's 2023 proposal and could do so again. The proposal comes as the U.S. hit the debt ceiling earlier this year. The Treasury has been using extraordinary measures for the government to pay its bills, But it's estimated that the U.S. could start defaulting on its obligations this summer if Congress doesn't address the debt ceiling. Biden's proposal delivered in the swing state of Pennsylvania is not likely to pass the Republican-controlled House, with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy calling it inadequate. Okay, on this show, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here's our first Democratic narrative from MSNBC. While undeniably ambitious, Biden's plan is a credible spending package that would reduce the deficit and protect vital social insurance programs. Meanwhile, the GOP is holding the American economy hostage by refusing Democrats' proposals without presenting any of their own as an impending catastrophic default inches ever closer. Where there's a Democratic, there's a Republican narrative. This one from Fox News. Biden's plan is not based in reality and is just a mechanism to raise taxes and grow the government. While the proposal would allegedly reduce the deficit by $3 trillion over the next decade, it doesn't meaningfully cut spending to tackle the national debt, which the Congressional Budget Office projected will grow by more than $20 trillion over the next 10 years. 
U.S. veterans testify about the catastrophic impact of the Afghan collapse. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Military.com, The Guardian, BBC News, and the Associated Press. Active service members and veterans who served in Afghanistan gave first-hand congressional testimony on Wednesday about the U.S. withdrawal from the country, describing the death and destruction they witnessed on the ground while imploring Congress to help U.S. allies that were left behind. Tyler Vargas Andrews, a Marine who protected Kabul's airport on August 26, 2021, when two suicide bombers attacked crowds of fleeing Afghans, spoke about his experience, describing the blast and seeing his dead comrades. Vargas Andrews, who was seriously wounded in the blast, said that, The withdrawal was a catastrophe, in my opinion, and there was an inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. Aidan Gunderson, a former Army specialist who served as a medic deployed to the Kabul airport, also spoke about his experience of the withdrawal in front of the Congressional Committee, describing blood-saturated, dusty clothing and head scarves smoldering in the middle of the runway that covered the dead bodies of Afghans. The testimonies were the first of what is expected to be a series of Republican-led hearings examining the Biden administration's handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021, which saw the Afghan army collapse, leading to Taliban rule in the country. Most witnesses argued that the fall of Kabul was an American failure, with each presidential administration from George W. Bush to Joe Biden taking the blame, though the testimony did not focus on the actual decision to withdraw. The Trump administration made a deal with the Taliban in 2020 to eventually withdraw U.S. forces, with the incumbent Biden administration choosing to continue the policy. All right, here are the spins on this story. We'll start with a Republican narrative from The New York Post. The evidence continues to mount that the Biden administration's rushed and chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan directly led to the fall of Kabul and the Taliban returning to power. There's no excuse for the unjust suffering the Afghan people have endured since then, all because Biden wanted to score some cheap political points. Trump agreed to a withdrawal plan, but Biden's rushed execution caused a massive disruption that would not have occurred under the previous administration. And the Democratic narrative from Vox. The U.S.'s disastrous invasion and occupation of Afghanistan under George W. Bush not Biden's withdrawal, are to blame for the fall of Kabul and the current security crisis. The fact that Afghan security forces crashed immediately following the U.S. withdrawal indicates that the security situation was simply unsustainable, and the collapse was essentially inevitable. There are, of course, valid criticisms of the withdrawal, but most have been unnecessary partisan attacks against Biden, and Trump's role also deserves scrutiny. We turn our heads to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where at least 40 were killed in alleged rebel twin attacks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Africa News, Al Jazeera, MSN, DW, and Xinhua. Local authorities in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, stated on Thursday that over 40 people have been killed in twin attacks carried out overnight on Wednesday in the neighboring villages of Mukandi and Mausa in the Beni territory of the North Kivu province. The provisional death toll from the raid, attributed to the allegedly Islamic State-affiliated Allied Democratic Forces, or ADF, rebels, is 38 people in Mukandi and 8 in Mausa, most of them reportedly killed with knives. 
The ADF is known for waging deadly machete and hatchet attacks on villages in the North Kivu province, which has been under military administration since 2021 in a bid to quell rebel activities bedeviling the area. Last week, the U.S. Embassy in Kinshasa announced that the Rewards for Justice program was offering $5 million for information leading to the location of ADF leader Musa Baluku, who has been designated by the State Department as a specifically designated global terrorist. A U.N. Security Council delegation is scheduled to start a three-day visit to the DRC on Thursday as the situation further deteriorates in North Kivu. This is also due to the powerful M23 rebel group, which reemerged in 2021. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA, stated on Wednesday that recent clashes in North Kivu have displaced over 20,000 people, with regional authorities reporting more than 800,000 residents affected in 2022. Thanks for that rundown of the facts, Melissa. We have a narrative A from World Politics Review. The DRC-based Ugandan rebel group ADF has consistently executed deadly attacks in North Kivu despite Kinshasa enforcing a state of siege in the area, revealing that the M23 is not the only threat to national and regional stability. And though cooperation between the DRC and Uganda has indeed achieved some tactical and operational goals against the ADF, the group's inner circle has not been broken yet. The Africa Report brings us Narrative B. While undeniable that the ADP has not been defeated yet, as it keeps creating chaos in the eastern DRC, joint efforts by Congolese and Ugandan forces have successfully expelled the ADF from the Ituri province, allowing civilians to return to their villages, and rescued those held in captivity by the terrorists. There is still a long way to go to eradicate ADF, but authorities are on the right path. We've reached day 379 of the conflict in Ukraine, where several are killed in Russian missile attacks across Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Ukraine Forum, Ukrainska Pravda, and The Guardian. Russia launched widespread missile attacks early on Thursday, striking energy infrastructure across 10 regions, but also hitting a number of residential buildings and killing a number of civilians. According to Valery Zelushny, commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, Russia launched a total of 81 missiles, 34 of which were, he said, shot down by Ukraine's air force and the country's air defenses. Zelushny added that Russia had eight drones over Ukraine, four of which were shot down. In Kyiv, an energy facility was struck in the Holosivsky district, while three civilians were injured by falling missile debris in the Sviatoshinsky district. Russia reportedly used its Kinzhal hypersonic missile to penetrate Kyiv's air defenses. In the western region of Lviv, at least five civilians were killed after a missile struck a residential building. The death toll may rise as searches in the rubble continue. At least three civilians were reported killed in Kherson after a missile hit a public transport stop. Strikes were further recorded in the regions of Odessa, Mykolaiv, Dnipropetrovsk, as well as in Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, Zhodomir, Ivano-Frankivsk, Kamelnitsky, and Ternopil. In a statement, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky described the series of attacks as a hard night, saying Russians can only terrorize civilians. That's all they can do, but that won't help them. They won't avoid responsibility for everything they have done. 
Meanwhile, in a U.S. Senate hearing on Wednesday, the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, said that Washington does not believe that Russia can make additional territorial gains this year. However, she added that Russian President Vladimir Putin has likely calculated that extending the conflict works in his favor. As a prolonged conflict, even if it lasts years, better serves Russia's strategic interests. Elsewhere, according to a New York Times report, Pentagon officials are reportedly blocking the Biden administration and other U.S. agencies from sharing evidence of alleged Russian war crimes with the International Criminal Court, or ICC. The Defense Department reportedly opposes the move because the precedent could subsequently be used to prosecute U.S. soldiers for their alleged transgressions in other wars. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on the story. The pro-establishment narrative is from CNBC. Russia's deliberate targeting of energy infrastructure, unnecessarily increasing the suffering of civilians, amounts to war crime. This continuing Russian barbarity must be confronted. And the pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. Russia's latest missile attacks on Ukraine were a direct retaliation to the terrorist attack that was last week carried out in Russia's Bryansk region with the help of Ukraine security services. And from time to time, we get a nerd narrative. This comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there is an 18 percent chance that Russia will capture or surround a large Ukrainian city before June 1st, 2023. The U.S. Senate blocks an overhaul of the D.C. criminal code. And here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, CBS, NBC and The Independent. On Wednesday, the U.S. Senate, with many Democrats joining the minority Republicans, voted 81 to 14 to approve a GOP-backed measure that blocks Washington, D.C. from revamping its criminal code. President Joe Biden, who recently said he supported the resolution, which passed the Republican-led House in February, is expected to sign it. Congress, which can invalidate proposed D.C. legislation under federal law, seeks to overturn the D.C. Revised Criminal Code Act of 2022, which would have reduced maximum sentences for several offenses and ended many mandatory minimum sentences. D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson asked for the resolution to be removed from congressional consideration after Biden's surprise endorsement, however, Senate leadership aides overruled him. When D.C.'s changes were first brought forward in 2022, homicides in the district had decreased by 10 percent after having increased for four consecutive years. The district's police union opposed the measure because of concerns it could lead to an increase in violent crime. All right, Melissa, thanks for that rundown. We have a narrative A from One America News. Homicides are on the rise again in D.C., and the best way to stop the surge is by putting violent people in jail and keeping them there. The biggest obstacles to keeping the streets safe are repeat offenders, a reality that Biden has rightly recognized by showing his support for this resolution. Narrative B comes from Jacobin Magazine. With the start of his re-election campaign imminent, Biden has disappointingly folded to GOP pressure in order to appease the opposition. The D.C. bill isn't soft on crime, which isn't even a hot-button issue according to recent polling. It's more focused on reducing unnecessary incarceration. But Biden has reverted to his old tough-on-crime self, dismissing D.C.'s sovereignty in the process. Australia to buy nuclear subs from the United States. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Daily Mail, The New Daily, Independent, and The Wall Street Journal. According to anonymous U.S. officials, Australia is expected to announce it will buy as many as five U.S. Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines in the 2030s as part of the AUKUS Agreement, a trilateral security pact between Australia, the U.K., and the U.S. AUKUS, announced in 2021, will reportedly see at least one U.S. submarine visit Australian ports in the coming years and will end in the late 2030s with a new division of submarines being built with British designs and American technology. Next week, U.S. President Joe Biden is scheduled to host Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in San Diego to discuss the details of the security pact, which reportedly aims to counter China in the Indo-Pacific region. Under the deal, Australia will become one of seven countries to operate a nuclear-powered submarine. The American Virginia-class submarines are reportedly intended as a stopgap to provide Australia with nuclear-powered defenses until the new class of submarines is developed. Australia's current fleet of six conventionally-powered Collins-class submarines will have their service life extended to 2036, after which they will be replaced. Nuclear submarines can stay underwater longer than conventional ones and are harder to detect. AUKUS will also see the countries cooperate on artificial intelligence, autonomous systems, hypersonic missiles, and undersea technologies, among other areas. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. We'll start this round of spins with an establishment critical narrative from time. Even if it takes Australia longer than expected to build up its fleet of nuclear-powered subs, China will see this as a provocation and the start of a nuclear arms race in the region. Beijing might not immediately retaliate, but this agreement will eventually see it further invest in the military and could force other neighbors to pick sides in a Cold War-style conflict. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from The Guardian. Australia must adopt this nuclear-powered submarine plan in order to protect the peace and stability of the region and guard against aggression from China. Its neighbors and allies should understand this deal as a peaceful one, not an act of war. In addition to defense, Australia will benefit from jobs created and technological advancements in its broader economy. And here's another nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that Australia will commission its first nuclear-powered submarine by November 2036. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. You ever been on a real submarine? I used to give tours of a real submarine, Scott. Mm, lived, tell me more um, about that. Yeah, I lived in Chicago and I worked in the uh, Museum of Science and Industry, and they have a real U-boat yeah, there was a German submarine that was sunk off the coast of New Jersey. Cool. Like the ball that goes over the old guy's fence. We're keeping that U-boat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, definitely a souvenir. It was kind of neat. They, you know, they put these like sounds. You know, we gave a tour and we pushed these little buttons inside and you would hear German uh, sailors saying, you know, Achtung, Achtung. And, uh, and you run through it and just talk about what life was like on these squishy little submarines. Now, yeah. they are definitely smaller than these nuclear submarines. Sure. Did you um, feel claustrophobic in there at all? Was It, it was pretty tight, I imagine. It is very tight. Um, because the hatches were open and I was not underwater, I was okay. Man, I, I don't know what it is about me in water, but I love it. And, and, so, and I am claustrophobic, but if I'm in a boat, I'm actually fine. No matter what, I don't know what mm. I'm like. The opposite of you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I was some kind of. Well, can I borrow your snorkel? Uh, no thanks. 
Okay. All right. Uh, I'm just going to gift it to you, Scott. Oh, thanks. Oh, thanks. Yeah. People keep saying that to me. That's weird. Matt Hancock's Wuhan lab leak comments are censored. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Sky News, The Guardian, The Daily Mail, and Yahoo News. New releases from The Telegraph's lockdown files, revelations primarily from a collection of WhatsApp texts exchanged by the UK government during COVID, show that former Health Secretary Matt Hancock was censored by the Cabinet Office over concerns that the virus originated in a Wuhan lab leak. The draft of Hancock's pandemic diaries saw him express skepticism over Chinese officials' version of the events. According to Beijing, the virus was first discovered in a wet market in Wuhan, coincidentally near a government virology lab. Officials reportedly warned the stance could cause problems, insisting that Hancock make it clear the assessment didn't reflect the government's view. All former government ministers are required to submit any potential memoir manuscripts to the cabinet office for review, which saw Hancock's comments about COVID's potential origin and his warning that the global fear of the Chinese must not get in the way of full investigation removed from the final draft. This is a contrast to the U.S., with the FBI saying last week that the agency believed a lab leak was the most likely explanation for the origin of the virus. This comes as UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is currently preparing to premiere a new, less aggressive diplomatic strategy towards China than was proposed by his predecessor, Liz Truss. All right, lots of facts in there, Melissa. Let's start our spins with Narrative A from The Spectator. It's unacceptable that the UK government has such a difficult time criticizing China. This oppressive regime is not only committing human rights abuses at home, but has potentially covered up a major blunder that resulted in the shutting down of the global economy. A more hawkish stance must be taken towards Xi Jinping, and the possibility that COVID did potentially originate in a lab must be held as politically acceptable. And we have Narrative B from the Wall Street Journal. The theory that the COVID pandemic was the result of a lab leak was dismissed not only due to partisan politics, but because of a wide variety of human performance factors, including cultural cognition, self-selection, and social proof. Fundamental failings in the way humans practice scientific discourse, rather than a desire to appease China, contributed to the scientific establishment's rush to thwart this as a potential explanation. It's almost an oxymoron. Scientific establishments rush to thwart. That's antithetical. Like, you shouldn't be trying to prove that this is wrong. You should be trying to figure out what's true. Right. And that, that, that's your problem right there. That, that's true. That with science, we want the truth in science, right? And science, science can be politicized just as well. It can be used as a political weapon. The FTC intensifies its investigation of Twitter. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, and ABC News. The Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, has acknowledged an investigation into Elon Musk's mass layoffs and a wide-ranging investigation into the company's privacy practices, according to documents described in a report by a congressional committee. According to the report, the FTC has sent more than a dozen letters to Twitter and its lawyers since Musk took over the company in October. The letters requested more information about the privacy settings associated with the new Twitter Blue subscription and for the company to identify all journalists who are granted access to company records. 
The Republican-led House Judiciary Committee published excerpts from the FTC's letter on Tuesday as part of a report accusing the FTC of overreaching to harass Elon Musk's Twitter. The FTC has defended its decision. In May, Twitter agreed to pay $150 million in response to allegations that it misused private information. Okay, let's start these spins with a left narrative from Axios. No matter how much Twitter needs to cut costs, it still needs to meet legal obligations. The FTC is conducting a thorough investigation to ensure that consumer privacy regulations are being met. It is of the utmost importance that consumer information is protected, no matter how unpopular the investigations may be. And Fox News brings us the right narrative. There's no reason why the FTC would need to know the identities of journalists who engaged with Twitter records or internal communications about Elon Musk. All of Twitter's decisions do not need to be analyzed based on user privacy. This is an unreasonable overreach of a government organization, and this kind of weaponization of government needs to be stopped. I do think we're in the the wild west of regulating or not regulating technological uh, advancements like social media. Luckily, people will always need memes and uh, and like really mean things said about celebrities. So that's Twitter. Twitter will be fine. In a recent report, a carbon capture technique shows promise. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, CNET and The Guardian. Scientists have reportedly outlined a new and efficient approach for capturing carbon dioxide from the air and transforming the gas into bicarbonate of soda to be stored in seawater. The process is predicted to be three times as efficient as other related methods and will speed up the use of technology for implementation. In June 2022, Climework AG, a Swiss startup company, began construction on a site that would be the company's second, quote, direct air capture plant and was expected to recover 36,000 tons of CO2 annually. The site was slated to house 80 large blocks of fans and filters to capture the greenhouse gas. A DAC uses fans and filters to capture air and move it through additional filters infused with chemicals, causing CO2 particles to stick. The filters are then introduced to heat, pressure, or additional chemicals that release the CO2 for collection and storage. Climeworks plants, located in Iceland, use geothermal energy to heat the filters to 100 degrees Celsius or 212 degrees Fahrenheit. The CO2 is collected by CarbFix, a partnering company, and combined with water before being stored underground, where it will become rock within two years. The company plans to expand its operations by opening plants in Oman and Norway. All right, Narrative A comes from the International Energy Agency. The deployment of carbon capture, utilization, and storage technologies often catches a bad rep for the cost of investment. Critics are misunderstanding the benefits as well as the potential for a surefire, low-carbon solution. Even with the naysayers, these technologies are gaining momentum, and in 2020 alone, governments put up more than $4.5 million in support. The world will come to understand that net zero emissions cannot be achieved without this method. This is vital for addressing climate change. Narrative B is provided by the Bulletin. Carbon capture is not new. It began in the 1970s and has a long history of failure. The technology behind CCUS has been rebranded by oil companies as a climate-friendly practice and used to produce more oil and gas, increasing emissions. 
global carbon capture projects have failed one after another, with the most notorious failure being the 2015 Aliso Canyon gas leak in California. These efforts are exorbitantly expensive and dangerous, and the long-term life of a capture project is questionable at best. I I mean I'm all, I want to I want to figure something out cuz I'm I'm burning stuff. I'm using energy. We got to figure out some way to at least counteract what I'm doing. If we can start with that. Um I'm going to start does... a foundation. It's going to it's going to be a Scott Net Zero. <laughs> Make me Net by Zero by 2070. Yeah. Okay, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. Wait, but... how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 39. So... 2100. Scott will be yeah. carbon neutral. Good. Good. Yeah. Cuz you'll be dead. But... But I'll, that's fine. <laughs> you know, it's one way to put a stop to my polluting. Our final story comes from Japan as arrests are made after a wave of sushi terrorism. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Evening Standard, CNN, Daily Mail, Washington Post, and WION. On Wednesday, police in Japan arrested two teenagers and a 21-year-old man on suspicion of obstructing a conveyor belt sushi restaurant's business after videos of their unhygienic pranks sparked outrage online. The pranks, dubbed sushi terrorism, involved diners licking shared soy sauce bottles, sucking the rim of a teacup before putting it back, and rubbing saliva on passing sushi pieces on conveyor belts for social media clout. The trio reportedly took part in an extremely malicious nuisance, including licking a soy sauce dispenser spout at one of the country's famous rotating conveyor belt restaurants, Kura Sushi, in Nagoya, on February 3rd. Last month, a video showing a boy licking cups and soy sauce bottles and touching other diners' food after licking his fingers received nearly 40 million views on Twitter. It caused the Sushiro chain of sushi restaurants' stock prices to plummet by 5%. The viral trend has forced several conveyor belt sushi restaurants to stop using their belts altogether or install artificial intelligence-assisted surveillance cameras to detect suspicious diners. The conveyor belt sushi, or Kaiten Zushi, has grown into an estimated 740 billion yen, or 5.4 billion American dollar industry. Thank you, Scott. Here are the final narratives on our final story today. Narrative A comes from the Japan Times. The internet has given a minority of mean-spirited teens and young adults a platform to gain attention, fame, and likes and shares as proof of their banal online existence. Sushi terrorism, which overnight invalidated a staple of Japanese culture, is reminiscent of the viral ice cream challenge a few years ago, when youngsters posted videos of themselves licking ice cream and putting the tubs back in store freezers. Only harsh punishments, such as heavy fines or jail terms, will spread awareness that such irresponsible acts are a crime and that there will be no copycat acts in the future. And Narrative B comes from CNN. Japan is renowned for its exacting cleanliness standards and culinary etiquette. However, the sushi terrorism trend violates all food and hygiene norms and blots the sushi train culture. It is extremely problematic and exposes the problem with the conveyor belt restaurant model, which is based on the belief that people will behave. With rising COVID infections, conveyor belt sushi chains must reevaluate their hygiene standards, as well as address the chronic labor shortage. Occupational health and safety protocols have needed a review of this dining style for some time. 
They say there's no place for the death penalty and it's not a deterrent. Let's find out. If you are licking soy sauce containers and and sashimi that's going around this type, I love conveyor belt sushi. It's, it's so the fun. Best. It's the best. It's like the perfect food. It's good for you. It's as expensive as you want it to be. You can take you know, your like kids there. These people should be. Let's find whatever the gross. Like here's the Chernobyl nuclear foot. You got to lick that. You got to, uh, you know, like you want to lick something? We'll give you something to lick. Like yeah, every here's... person who ever ate at that restaurant should be able to pick one thing for that person to have to lick. And they all get to stand in a line and give the person that thing to lick. Now that's Hammurabi brought to life. Nice. I like it. Punishment suits the crime. A lick for a lick. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, March 10th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.